0: Welcome to California Women Lawyers Seat at the Table podcast. I am your host, Summer C. Selleck, joined today by my fabulous co host, Ariel Brownell Lee, and our guest, Kelly Durbati of Leaf, Cabrazer, Heinemann, and Bernstein. Ariel, would you get the listeners acquainted with our speaker today?
1: Absolutely. Kelly is managing partner of the San Francisco office of Leaf, Cabrazer, Hyman and Bernstein LLP. She chairs the firm's employment practice group and specializes in class and collective actions on behalf of employees. Kelly is nationally recognized advocate in the areas of pay equity, Me Too, and diversity and inclusion. She has prosecuted numerous cases challenging unfair hiring, promotion, compensation, and performance systems. The Daily Journal observed that Kelly's values have translated into real workday value for lots of people, people who have won better job opportunities from companies like Abercrombie & Fitch, Home Depot, and Smith Barney, or monetary damages from banks that have engaged in predatory lending and servicing. In 2012, Kelly served as president of the Bar Association of San Francisco. She is a member of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and the American Law Institute. The Daily Journal has selected Kelly as one of the top 100 attorneys in California, top 75 labor and employment lawyers in California, and top 100 women litigators in California. Kelly received her B.A. degree from Harvard University and a J.D. from Berkeley Law School. She clerked for the Honorable John T. Nixon in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee before joining Leif Cabraser. Kelly has been named as the 2019 recipient of the Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award by the American Bar Association. Welcome, Kelly. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. We really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. So first thing I want to talk about is what an eventful summer that you have had. Uh, you won the ABA Margaret Brent Award. You were the keynote speaker at California Women Lawyers Annual Conference. Maybe other things that we don't even know about. Probably. Um, <laughs> talk to us first. What was it like to win the Margaret Brent Award? Um, wow.
2: Yeah, completely surreal. And, um, I, you know, I felt sort of awestruck being there. Um, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of... Um, lists and whatnot that people can get on in all kinds of professions, and there's lots of um, listing organizations, but since I was just like a brand new lawyer, I went to an ABA um, annual conference and someone found me a seat at the Margaret Brent, and I always understood that to be an incredibly special... um, event and and the awardees were really inspiring. And I've you been through many of those luncheons. And when I got the call that I actually won that, I I was kind of, I think I swore, I was like, holy, you know, (laughs) and just couldn't believe it, uh, honestly, because I, I, I don't know, you sort of have your career and don't really ever feel like you're at that kind of finish line, you know. Um, So it was amazing uh, and I loved my fellow awardees. Um, There are a few people on the stage I didn't really know um, and I've gotten to know since and that's been really kind of fun. Um, And then I've known and sort of been in the same circles with Julie Sue for my entire legal career. We're kind of the same era and I just adore her so much. So it was just a thrill um, to share that moment of friendship as well that she was there and she's
0: awesome. So yeah, that's great. Very cool. And um, so I wanted to ask you, we heard you speak at the CWL conference and your speech was amazing, as was your speech at the Margaret Brent Award.
2: Thank you. Um,
0: you're welcome. Um, I I wanted to ask you a question about um, leaning in versus leaning out. Um, one recent poll says that there's 70% of women that that want to change their career. We all know that Sheryl Sandberg famously suggested that women should lean in. Um, But there is a group of equally smart women, like Michelle Obama, um, who says that you should lean out, because this system has been created by cisgender white men and that we should not try and fit into it. Obviously, you have flourished in this um, structure, right? Um, You are a managing partner of Leaf Grazer. You are just a badass. Um, what do you say to leaning in versus leaning out? Well, um, I find the the
2: framework itself kind of challenging to answer um, because I, I when you first started ask the question, I started thinking about it not from the perspective of being an individual woman, but from the perspective of being someone who has the opportunity to break the path for others or to not even break a path, but to create. Safety or safe place to fail and then get back on your feet again for others. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in that sense, I feel like personal responsibility about creating spaces for others when you have a platform to do it um, is really important. Like, you can't be passive around that, Mm -hmm. you have to be very active and conscious. Um, In terms of, you know, thinking about um, what the path should be for individual women, uh, that is so tough because I, I represent a lot of female professionals in my work mm-hmm. um, who uh, have leaned in so hard uh, and often have been so burned for it um, and yet they still come forward and they file litigation and they want to make the world a better place for you know their sons and their daughters um, and to have female role models and i find that um, really inspiring but I, I also absolutely recognize the criticism that Um, The institutions that have been created are not set up for people like us to succeed. And there there are so many tripwires uh, that are there for people like us. And I mean us, like women or diverse people of any backgrounds, women of color, uh, men of color, LGBTQ. um, It's very difficult to... um, uh, to win a race when the race is rigged, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when the goalpost keeps moving, absolutely all the time. So um, I um, I accept the, the the concept that we have to t- fundamentally challenge the system, always. Um, but I also think that there is a role for the people that lean in to also create those spaces where the systems can be more adaptive.
1: Absolutely, I think that's. And I think that's something you talked about um, in your CWL keynote speech you gave talking about in your sphere of influence, how can you affect change yourself? And I thought it was very interesting. You talked about two ways to ensure pay equity um, in an organization. And the two ways you talked about that was to publish everyone's salary, so there's complete transparency, and also the other way to have monitoring and reporting at the highest levels of the organization. And I know that you said you go through and look at everyone's pay at your firm every year. Yes. Um, Talk to me about those two different ways and what organizations do you think each one would work in better? Sure. Um, so uh, obviously
2: if everyone knew what everyone earned, um, you would eliminate pay gaps pretty quickly because people could self-enforce. Mm-hmm. It would be obvious to them. Um, but that's not the system we have, at least not in private institutions, which is you know, a huge part of the workforce. Um, And so I I see some of the legislation that's been happening um, in California and elsewhere where um, people are becoming more entitled to get pay information. So applicants now in California are entitled to get the range uh, for the job that they're seeking. Um, That law, oddly, doesn't actually specify that that's true for incumbent employees um, to get that information. although the same rationale would apply. Um, And it starts us on a path of transparency because obviously right now people can make assumptions, but then if they go into court, they have no credible basis to say, I was paid less. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one way, and I think we have a lot of work to do on transparency. The second way is monitoring. Monitoring. And and or monitoring and reporting. So monitoring is uh, the honor system, right. um, and in some organizations that works well. I think the organization when you have a plaintiff's employment lawyer who does gender pay g- equity cases, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of set up to be a little more successful. Um, you got to like uh, keep your own house clean first. Um, but in other organizations, I think the honor system is failing badly, and either the monitoring isn't happening or the monitoring itself is uh, set up to provide a result of success that isn't actually truthful. Mm-hmm. That is, comparing apples and oranges in ways that are, you know, g- generated to show you that men and women make the same amount of money when that's not really... It's
1: creative accounting, right?
2: Creative accounting, you know, looking at women that are very senior, comparing them to men who are very junior, and saying, look, women are earning more. Um, uh, that's the kind of stuff you see in a lot of, you know, uh, pay audits. Um, there's obviously a lot of work being done on the legislative side and the regulatory side to figure out how to get companies to actually report out um, their gender pay gaps. And you see that happening overseas, you know, in the UK and now in other countries. There are efforts to have companies report at least on a quarter level or quintile level of their pay structure, like in this quartile, what is the gender pay gap? In the next quartile, what is the gender pay gap? And it's really rough justice because it's baking in all kinds of seniority and other issues, but it's um, public. And so you see, like in the big banks, these massive gender pay gaps, and they're even much worse around bonuses than around base pay. And, of course, that's made the public very upset Mm -hmm. with a number of sort of household names. And now those companies are scrambling because even though you can criticize the – you know, big generalities of the reporting. Um, the end result is that there are some companies that look pretty good <laughs> and others that look really terrible, mm-hmm. and they got a, a you know, answer to it. And so we don't really have anything comparable yet in the U.S., but I think there's going to be efforts, you know, here in California. Um, there were efforts by the EEOC and labor until the new EEOC commissioner just came in and ah. basically wants to gut the um, approved pay reporting uh, that was going to happen so you know it's like a stay tuned thing but there's so much effort now to work on equal pay and Mm -hmm. i think people recognize that you can't trust the the fox to you know guard the chicken coop like we companies aren't doing it so we have to find other ways to enforce transparency or require some type of regulatory accounting
1: and the transparency just seems like the best place to start, maybe, while we figure out how to get people to report out honestly. Yes. But I know in government organizations, there's a lot of pay transparency, right? Like, we know what the judges make. We know what yeah. – So do you think that in government organizations, there's less, there's less of a problem there because the salaries are published?
2: I think there's very little problem there in base salaries, I think the problem in uh, the public sector can be bonuses. Hmm. So, you know, retention bonuses can be an issue. There's actually a Ninth Circuit case involving um, a woman at a public university professor uh, who has an equal pay claim. And basically the university had a habit of paying um, men, male professors, these retention bonuses out of fear they were going to leave or threat they are going to leave. And the end result is that men doing the exact same job are earning more, Um, and, you know, women are, you know, famously more um, loyal,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. um, don't move as much uh, in employment, and they're getting penalized for it, in these sort of back-end ways that companies come up with compensation uh, tools. So I think that's an issue that has to be studied in public Uh, employment, Um, but we get both of those in private employment. You get the signing bonus, you get the retention bonus, you get the bonus bonus. Right.
0: Um, You get it from all directions. All directions. Yeah. Got it. There's, I feel like there's been a real push recently, at least I've noticed it, from um, trainings versus monitoring. So before it was, well, let's train people on how to to be equal and and uh, understand diversity and, and what have you. And now it seems like, no, 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 we have to actually monitor it. Trainings aren't working. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about, want to elaborate on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that um, it, we had to first figure out what the question is that we're answering. So if the question we're trying to answer is um, how do we make a company uh, a place where, you know, diverse people, women of all races, men of color, et cetera, are you know having a fair shot, getting paid equally, same opportunities, getting promoted as frequently, and being retained, um, training isn't doing that. Training's not creating those things. Mm-hmm. Monitoring is the only way to ensure those outcomes. Um, if <coughs> training is intended to um, help a culture learn uh, about issues so that the culture can be taken along a road of becoming more actively inclusive, more consciously inclusive, then training might be a way to help to um, uh, soften up people's resistance to thinking they don't need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no data that demonstrates that you know, EEO training results in equal pay. There's no data that shows that uh, her, you know, anti-harassment training ha- causes women to be retained at a higher Amount Like, there's no, there's no efficacy around some of these interventions. Um, and unfortunately, uh, there's been a whole series of um, sort of industries and practices that companies have adopted because other companies are doing them. And once it becomes kind of uh, in vogue, it rolls out in a way that people think that just having these programs is the same as doing the work, is the same as to having the outcomes, and then they're even more resistant to actually doing the monitoring or doing any other interventions that actually work because they think, look, we have a big diversity budget, we're doing all this, you know, these great programs, um, we support our women's initiative, um, that's, you know, we're great. Uh, meanwhile, women are, you know, leaving at higher rates than men. Mm-hmm. Women are still being sexually harassed. Women aren't being promoted. There's a glass ceiling. They're not being paid the same. You know, none of those things are actually being addressed. Um, so uh, I do think that um, the, the, the experience we, people have had anecdotally, plus the data that's been developed through social science, has caused people to really question. Um, all of the energy that has gone into this one area, which is sort of this training and programming, as opposed to actually centering the responsibility for a fair and inclusive culture in the C-suite, in the senior leadership, uh, in the senior management, and making it their everyday front and center job to ensure that that workplace works for everyone yeah. um, and to not silo that someplace else in the programming.
0: Cool. I... Um I was talking another concept that you have r- around equal pay, which I was talking with Ariel about last night. Actually, is the concept of, of lockstep. Oh, lockstep. I was going
1: to bring up I,
0: I brought it up to Ariel, and we were just when you, when you brought it up at the conference. I remember my mind was sort of blown. I was like, "Whoa, we can do that! They can do that!" <laughs> um, and so I was hoping that you could you could explain it a little bit to the the listeners and and, 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 si- and show what Leaf Grazer does because it's shocking. Like I don't think anybody, like I don't think a lot of people know that that is, exists and
2: Yeah, sure. (laughs) Well, so, you know, um, I I can talk about my firm, but also talk about kind of the law. You know, the law requires that people um, who are substantially similar, are doing substantially similar work, are being paid the same. And so what goes into that? You know, it's like your skills and experience, kind of the duties of your job. And so thinking about just start with a first-year associate lawyer. Mm -hmm. You know, straight out of law school, they have no prior experience as a, as a, Licensed lawyer, um, they they really there could be no possible basis to pay one of them differently than the other. They're doing the same, you know. I'm talking about base pay now. Yeah. They're doing the same thing. Um, how would that change for a second year, or a third year, or a fourth year? Like to to our mind, in our firm, we lockstep raise people at each level as they go up in the associate ranks because we see their skills. Uh, and their talents being the same. We're we're asking them to use the same skills. Um, Now, some people are going to perform more efficiently or will be better at certain tasks than others. It doesn't change the nature of the work they're doing or the educational background that is required for them to do that work. Um, So we just decided that we didn't want to leave to the the charisma of the particular partner who was advocating (laughs) for an associate to see if associates would be treated fairly. We wanted to ensure from a top-down standpoint that we um, locked associates into categories by their class year that would um, pay them commensurate with their skills and duties. Um, and then we told the associates, that's how we're paying you. And um, I don't think we were expecting any kind of like backlash or anything, but we actually experienced like a great amount of appreciation Um, Mm -hmm. And associates saying that it was such a relief, like especially like female associates saying, I just was really happy to know I didn't have to worry if I was being paid differently than someone else. Um, And the tricky part has happened when we have, let's say, a lateral third or fourth year associate um, and he or she has, you know, some... Wonderful clerkship that they've done, and they've worked at some fancy firm that pays them, you know, gobs of money. And we have a different structure in our firm than the management firms that pay the gobs of money. Um, and so we look at that, and we're like, "Are we going to bring this person in? We can't pay them what they're paying be- making before. They don't want to make our at our structure, even though they could make partners sooner, and there's more in it for them on bonus." Um, we then asked the question, are we going to upset our entire structure to bring this person in? Because if we bring them in and pay them more, we're going to pay everyone more. It's going to shake up our structure. And so we have actually let people walk because we didn't want to shake up our structure. And we have changed our whole structure because we realized we were underperforming in the market because people like the person we were recruiting, um, you know, was telling us that our associates were being underpaid. And so that was you know, info we've used in both ways. Um, We try to do the same thing with our um, partners as they make partner, to try to look at partners that are in a similar partner year, um, as they make it through the junior partner ranks, and as they earn equity, that changes. And that really is based on how much you actually contribute to the firm's profits. By that time, you know, you should have pretty much complete control over the cases you're working on, what you do in those cases, you know what your connections are out in the legal market. Um, things that you couldn't possibly expect an associate to have, or even really a junior junior partner. You know, someone's still six years into practice or seven years into practice. I mean, it's they're they're probably in large part successful because they worked on a case that a partner or partners generated that allowed them to show in a very visible way their contribution their skills, yeah. but it doesn't mean that they're doing different work than the partner right next to them who just happened to work on less popular prestigious stuff but is doing the same work
0: that's awesome I just think it's like the greatest structure that's ever
1: that's <laughs> an amazing structure and one that I haven't heard of before and yeah. before you talked about it that's not something I even considered existing and it's such it's such a common sense concept it seems like and I'm yeah. surprised it's not used more often
0: yeah it um, must make Other companies that hear about it, or other law firms that hear about it, uncomfortable a little bit. I
1: mean, maybe their associates uncomfortable. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, you must, do you ever, do you have any, has anybody given you any kickback about it? Like, how can you do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, what I've heard um, other people say is we really like having, you know, the discretion to, you know, decide who's really the talented person or, you know, who's really. Helping or what have you, and I'm like, well, if you have a bonus that recognizes different levels of performance, uh, you know, or you are a billable hour shop and, you know, you want to reward people, you know, based on some level of performance along just billable hours, which I'll have my own critique of that, but if that's your thing, um, you can reward that. But if you're talking about what people do when they arrive at work every day and what it took them to get to that job, how do you put person you know, A working on an employment case getting paid differently than person B working on an antitrust case? Like, that makes no sense to me. They're doing the same job. They're just working on a different subject matter. Right. So, or person A, you know, even worse, working on an employment case being paid differently than person B working on an employment case in the yeah. same class year because person B came in at a higher level of pay from a lateral job. I mean, how
1: unfair. Yeah. Yeah, that person is. A is going to develop resentment when they figure that out,
2: as they should, and maybe yeah. a lawsuit. Right, because yeah. if person if there's a difference in is um, race or
0: gender, it's illegal to do that.
1: Yeah, I want to circle back. You talked about efficiency and billable hours. Yeah, and um, you've said before that this
0: is a cool concept. The, the
1: single most efficient worker in our in our economy is a working mom with young young children. Absolutely, and I know that there is whether you call it a motherhood tax or whatever you want to call it women have to leave the workforce for a certain period of time when they have a child you know whether that's six weeks 12 weeks or if they want to take the whole year off or two days or t- unfortunately <laughs> or two days depending on how what the structure is yeah right. how does that play in to your firm's idea of lock stepping because I imagine that would help not leave those women behind correct and in other firms though, that they can use the oh well you didn't meet your billable hours this year because you had a child and you went out therefore you're not getting promoted and I think that's where you start to see a lot of the pay gaps right is lockstepping the only answer are there other answers yeah I mean if I you account ha- for that
2: sure sorry excuse- to inter- was- interrupt you um, yeah if you have a billable requirement why can't you gross up the billables to th- account for the rest of the year like so if someone's out for you know four twelfths of the year you just gross up uh, the rest of that year to account for those missing as if a person was on the same pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, they will tell you what their billables were, hypothetically. Um, it doesn't seem that hard.
0: <laughs> it is math for lawyers. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, no, and I think, um, I mean, again, we don't have um, that. We We keep... Studious time, like we had to give our time records to judges who mm. can critique them. So, I think in some ways we're even harder about timekeeping than a shop that sends bills to clients. Mm-hmm. But we um, we prize people that do great work efficiently, because the person that does a great job longer than the person who does that great job, you know, shorter is a less valuable worker to us because they you know the person that does things more efficiently can obviously take on more things Mm -hmm. and can diversify the risk across our cases Mm -hmm. Um, in the billable world the the almighty you know billable hour i think ends up penalizing the efficient worker and certainly penalizes people that have other duties outside of work whether it's caring for aging parents or you know, a relative who's disabled or, you know, they themselves are recovering from cancer. I mean, whatever is going on, you know, much less having kids, which is like the common thing, which falls disproportionately on women. um, That's a really big problem in terms of evaluating who is your most productive person. Because if your most productive person is just purely the person that logs the most hours, um, that's always going to screw with people that, can't just stay at work 24-7. Um, and I think it's a real loss to the profession because, again, the best people, <laughs> the really efficient, good people um, are being judged less productive under that system.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I think that's such a fantastic take on it. and I could not agree more. That you know, When you're in law school and even before you go to law school, you look at lawyers and it's like this, oh, you have to always be there. You'll never make partner. You'll never do anything unless you work you know 16 hours a day a lot of people just can't do that they have parents children other things
2: yeah it's sort of encouraging i suppose that um the people that are you know the millennial generation and i include millennial men um in the comment about this are are um resisting this idea that you're supposed to put work first and that you have to be um, you know a career person to be successful in a profession and that there's more to life right and so um, I embrace that I I think that's been really healthy for our profession and others to have uh, people say look you know I want to make a career here or I want to have this be my profession but I need to be a fully actualized human So I want to go to art class, Mm -hmm, you know, and I want to take two week vacations where I turn my phone off and I want to go on parental leave where I'm actually on leave Mm -hmm. and I'm not being called every day to like do a little this or that. Um, you know, want to go to the gym, like all the things. Self care, self care. Yeah, you, you need to last have it longer. You
1: don't burn out, right? <clears throat>
2: Absolutely, and you're happier, and I think you're fresher. You don't make the same mistakes, and mm-hmm. you're probably less prone to use alcohol and drugs as a release from all that tension and anxiety that people that are doing nothing else, undoubtedly, are building um, in the profession. So, um, I think those are hopeful things for us as lawyers, um, but it, you know. It, it, at the top levels of organizations, if there's still resistance to people having a life, it's going to trickle down to be not fully acceptable for people to make demands.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I I, I brought this up earlier when we were off microphone, but one of my favorite things that you've said is uh, a quote, because so often cultures that disrespect women in the pocketbook pocketbook don't stop there. Um, And... uh, that's exceptionally true. I mean, that seems like how you, you practice, right? You find the people who are disrespecting women in in pay and also in sexual harassment and and all different types of ways, and you sort of are the, um, what do they call you, the dragon slayer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. But yes, um, I, I mean, usually when people call me, when, when employees call me, they call me um, – It's usually not, it doesn't usually start with a complaint about pay or start with a complaint about a lost promotion. It usually starts with a complaint about sexual harassment or a complaint about severe bullying um, or really demeaning behavior in the workplace Mm -hmm. or really lewd behavior in the workplace. And through the conversation, out comes all, you know, the garden variety stuff. Mm -hmm. But what propelled them to ask for a lawyer's input was the in-your-face just, grotesque things that happen. Um, And so I, yeah, I felt like whenever I I hear about a workplace where women are being sexualized or completely ostracized, I'm sure they're not being paid well, you know, relative to men.
0: (laughs) No, they're definitely not. Yeah. Um,
1: Reverse engineer from sexual harassment back to pay inequity almost every time.
2: Yeah, and or if someone does call me about a promotion, I'll ask, you know, are there gender stereotypes in your... In your office, what happens when women ask to go on leave or if they get married? Are there assumptions that are made about them? And invariably, if there's a glass ceiling, there's a lot of gender stereotyping happening around women and family, um, women's sexuality, what women should look like and sound like uh, in leadership. Um, Yeah, so those things go hand in hand.
0: So I know this seems like a very simple question, considering what we've already been talking about, but how did you get into law like what was there a moment when that you were like, "I want to be a lawyer what what, what led you here
2: Yeah, I have like one of those stories, right? Um, so
0: we like those stories <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so I was um, I was in college and I thought that I wanted to be a doctor because my brothers wanted to be doctors, and I thought my brothers were you know had a great idea and it would be really cool to help people, and then I wasn't really that great at science, and um, and I was sort of frustrated around that, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I took time off um, after my sophomore year in college, and I went to work for Senator Ted Kennedy down in D.C., uh, and it was all kind of a great time to take off because I was just coming out as gay at the time, and it was 1987, um, and uh, at that time, Robert Bork got nominated to be um, Supreme Court Justice. And so I was assigned to Kennedy's Judiciary Committee office and assigned to work doing background research on Bork. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I was before the internet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> running around the Library of Congress and, and going to microfiche. Um, but I was in this office where there were constant uh, strategy meetings where lawyers from all kinds of major civil rights organizations were meeting with senior staff in his office. And I was the one college kid, like, in the background, you know, just doing my little work. Um, And I got to meet and see all these lawyers doing just incredible things um, and helping people. And, uh, you know, I was so inspired. I never had thought of going to, to law school. It just wasn't a path I never considered. Um, And, uh, you know, I, at the same time, you know, went to the March on Washington uh, for gay rights in 1987 um, and came back to campus and came out and was like, I'm going to be an advocate and no one has to be, you know, whatever, ashamed of being gay and I want to do all this other stuff. And, you know, I just decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, And it was kind of from that experience that I started thinking a lot more about racial injustice and um, really, really, like, seeing probably for the first time, even though I'd had friends, uh, friends of color, like I really walked in a world where I did not, I saw one America, you know? Yeah. Um, And I started to really think about the ways in which there were many, many experiences, many truths. Um, and many different situations that uh, existed for people. Um, And so that started me on what has been a lifelong journey around um, racial justice uh, and a lot of obviously thought about constructions of gender um, and gender justice and the way in which homophobia is related to, uh, misogyny and um, constructions of gender and feminine and masculine. So, yeah, so that you know, led me into law school where I thought I would do racial justice work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had uh, a job offer to go to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and do a joint project with Lambda Mm. um, on public health uh, with African-Americans in Los Angeles, and I couldn't get funded. So I had applied for all these scholarships to get $25,000 a year. Um, and I, you know, got yeah. on my way, and I was going to do this work, and I was really excited. And then I didn't have a job, and I was clerking, and someone told me to go apply to this firm, Leaf Cabraser, mm-hmm. and I never heard of them. And I applied to Leaf Cabraser, and ended up going to Leaf Cabrazer And I think I mentioned, you know, like day one of my job, I was writing an EEOC charge for a woman who was going to be in a gender class action lawsuit, and that was 25 years ago this week. Um, so, you know, I've been so lucky, and I talk to law students a lot about how you – if you got to law school, you probably had a lot of plans for yourself that you executed, and you probably think that you have to have it all figured out. Like, I'm going to leave law school, I have a plan, I'm going to execute it, and then I can do all the things I want to do. And I guess, um, <coughs> you know, an ex- Exhibit A for how – that can be completely untrue. <laughs> yeah. Like, Or you can think you have a plan – it does not work out, and then plan B ends up being like, just an incredible, Perfect. wonderful, like, mm-hmm. really lucky career. So, yeah, I, um, I was really, I guess, fortunate. Um, but, it, yeah, I feel like b- coming into law, it's been like, such a wonderful fit for what I want to do in the world, like what my mission is on the planet, and I have the most amazing clients like just so inspiring and courageous, um, you know how how could you not get up with fire in the belly every day, you know?
1: Absolutely.
0: That's awesome. Did your brothers yeah, become um, doctors? Yeah. Too? Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. I just I like to circle back. I'm sorry. Yeah. I ask the hard hitting questions, don't yeah. I? They were I think
2: already doctors <laughs> oh, okay. when I was in law school. Yeah. I'm the baby, so. Okay.
1: Yeah. You <laughs> bring a little law to the family. I, yeah. Yeah, you did. That's so great. You just and it sounds like you really found this opportunity where you're able to marry all of the things you wanted to do together um, and and be very successful at it. Um, we've had a lot of women on our show who are women of color and talked about the racial inequities when they're in law school, when they start practice, you know, what that's like. Yeah. For you, what has that been like as a gay woman, a gay woman in, you know, 1987? Um, have you felt harassed or discriminated against? Talk to us a little bit about that part of your career.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, um, those things are true. Um, it's and how you overcame them. You yeah. know, the positive
1: side of it, not <laughs> so just the uh, negative
2: so I want to say first that, um, like, there is there are layers to um, homophobia. And for, I think, most of my adult life, <clears throat> I've had somewhat, like, passing privilege because although to a gay person they can clock me as gay, like, right, like right away, um, which I love, like, I'm not trying to not be clocked as gay. Um, but to straight people that are ignorant, like, I have, you know, I can pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have not faced sort of the toxic, like, violent hostility that gender non-conforming gay people experience um, and which is like, you know, a totally different thing. Um, But uh, you know, when I went and clerked in Nashville after law school, um, I had done work um, with uh, women who were HIV positive through the East Bay Community Law Center. And I had done a lot of, like, gay activities. So I had stuff on my resume because I wanted to be out when I applied to a federal judge. I just yeah. didn't want to – and I was applying to the South because I wanted to go live in the South. And I just didn't want there to be, like, the Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't want to have to come out again. Yeah. And I didn't want to risk being fired because the judge didn't know, and then I would be stuck. Mm. Um, so this judge hired me, uh, and the clerk that was leaving that I replaced, uh, this guy thought it would be really funny to show my judge's staff my resume – Um, because his staff was like a very conservative um, African-American woman who was from Memphis area and a really conservative uh, white woman from Knoxville, like East Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, unbeknownst to me, this happened and they really like freaked out and they told like the whole courthouse staff um, and people wanted to order rubber gloves and they thought this person with AIDS was coming. And so my first day on the job when I was being introduced around to the other, there were four other federal judges and being introduced around to other chambers, and other judges, and walking the halls of the federal building in Nashville. Um, it was weird because people kind of were almost like running to like go to the cluster that was kind of like saying hi to me and then kind of like looking at me funny. And it was just awkward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this judge's staff was really rude to me, like mean, outwardly mean. And I'm thinking like, what did I do? Boy, right? yeah. <laughs> um, and at some point another clerk told me what had happened, which was really just painful. I was like, wow, so they just, like, freaking hate me because I'm gay, and they also think I have AIDS because I'm gay. Yeah. Um, And I went to my judge, and I said, I I really don't want to cause a problem, but I'd like your permission to allow me to talk to them, you know, because this is really uncomfortable. And he was like, Kelly, it'll end today. Like, I'll take care of it. And I was like, okay. And, um, and it did end that day. And then like forever else after that, like the rest of the year, looking for that judge, um, whenever, and then he got the New York Times every day. Whenever there was like an article about gay things, he would cut it out. And like just leave it on my desk or leave like the page like on my desk just so you know oh. I could read whatever gay news was happening just to let me know that he was cool that with he it. he was cool with it the whole time. I mean he had is still um, alive and is an amazing man, John Nixon, a Carter appointee who was a voting rights attorney in the sixties okay. and is from Alabama, wow. uh, and Bobby Kennedy asked him to go down to Selma. To basically make sure King wasn't going to be assassinated, but to basically, you know, be down in Selma for like five months around the march. Um, And he just uh, loves, loved diversity and difference and is just a naturally curious and comforting person, like a consciously (laughs) inclusive person. Um, So yeah, so I had actually an amazing year clerking for him, um, but it was one of those things where you're like, wow. I am, like, out here in the ocean without a paddle in yeah. Nashville, Tennessee, and it's going to be really scary. Uh, yeah. So I'll tell you, when I had my interview at Leif Cabraser um, in January of that clerkship year, and uh, I was sent to go meet with Elizabeth Cabrazer and we just started talking about, you know, how she came out in the middle of— um, she was in a complex class action in Alabama, and people were going around—all men— going around saying what they were missing at home. And she talked about how she was supposed to be showing up for her second parent adoption of the child she and her wife were were adopting. And she's trying to convince the judge she's a fit parent, but she's late because she's, you know, coming from the airport or whatever. And so she was just telling this kind of like funny story, but also a coming out story um, in Alabama. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was thinking, this is going to be so nice yeah. to come to this law firm where this is the senior female lawyer, right. and she's gay, and she's doing the work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I have not had a bad gay experience at Leaf Cabraser. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, clearly, Leaf Cabraser is a great, great club okay. We've heard really lovely things from all the people who've worked from you.
2: Oh, worked with you, <laughs> by the way. Oh, that's great. Yeah, very proud of the place.
1: It's absolutely disgusting to hear what the people did on your first day, but it's good to hear that you had such an ally in your judge who nipped that in the bud and it stopped. Did you yeah. did you feel inclusiveness from the other people in the courthouse after that?
2: Um,
0: or just it, tolerance? Did they learn? Yeah,
1: tolerance versus...
2: Yeah, versus. I, I'd say um, to, to a good degree. And what also helped is that my co-clerk, whose um, name is Kim Robinson, and Kim is amazing, she's a really good friend still, um, Kim is an African-American woman from Queens who, at the time, had finished Harvard Law School uh, before she went off on a Fulbright to South Africa, where she still lives. Oh. Um, and Kim, who's straight, and I became really good friends. And um, and we would run around Nashville together. Like, she's my best pal in Nashville. Um, and Nashville is so racially segregated that when we were together, I, we'd either be in Places that were all straight and black, or places that were gay and white, and so we just screwed everyone up all the time. <laughs> and um, and so like a, the the head public defender in Nashville, Mariah Wooten, amazing woman, um, African American woman, and the judge's uh, deputy, Mary Connor, and Kim and I, and uh, you know, sort of other black lawyers that were in town would go out, and um, I think it just broke that ice a lot around like. I, you know, I was gay, but I was, um, a human. a human, and also, like, I loved hanging out in spaces that there weren't a lot of white people, and so it was, for all of us, um, it was just a good, it was really good, and for me especially, it was really good, because I had such good support and friendship, um, yeah, and so it, it, it did work out, but not so much with a judge's secretary, who never really, liked New York him. <laughs> uh,
0: whatever, you but win yeah. some, you lose some. You win some, you lose some, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, we want to talk about mentorship, so you've 've named some of the people who have helped you in your career. Um, so what has been the role of, of mentorship for you um, and and what do you think of mentorship or how how do you mentor people in your current role
2: Yeah, I guess it you know there's like a whole industry around mentoring versus uh, champing and like whatever the terms are, right. Um, but I I think of it gen- generally as um, giving people advice on how to succeed and then creating space in case they fail and getting them back on their feet again because mm-hmm. um, let's face it like y- you don't come perfectly formed as a lawyer <laughs> you know and you have to be able to have growing pains and um, so uh, that type of mentorship I I try to provide for people and then um, being. Their advocate when they're not around, so telling other partners this person's great, mm-hmm. yeah, um, is really important uh, to create a brand for people. Uh, and you know, partners talk all the time. So I've heard so and so is really, really you know, fantastic, or I've heard so and so you know, is struggling. Um, like those are things that people talk about. And if you aren't thoughtful about how you you know, allow people to develop, you could give someone a bad reputation. Um, yeah. And so having someone that doesn't allow that to happen or corrects other people, if they say something about your person, mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, they, they're, they agitate. It's good. <laughs> this is why they agitate, because they've got these great ideas. Um, we should listen to them. Uh, it's an important role, I think, to play in,
1: uh, in helping people get ahead. Absolutely. Everyone needs that champion. Yes. Mentor, oh. champion, however you want to call it. I right. want to quote you
0: again because this was one of my favorite parts of your speech. <clears throat> and litigation is like that with the losses often humble, humbly, humblingly public and the wins sometimes too subtle for anyone but you to celebrate. I mean, wow. I mean, that really it hit me because it's so true. I mean, you, when you win, it just feels like, oh, I won. And then you you just get up the next <laughs> day the next and you have yeah. to keep moving. Like I. It's one of the things we've, we've asked a couple of our, our, our people who are on this podcast. Like, how do you even celebrate the wins? It seems like we get stuck in the failures so hard, but we, we don't ever, like, stop and just think about the, the wins. How do, you, how do you celebrate? Do you?
2: I think when I was um, a little bit earlier in my career, I um, reacted to both winning and losing more strongly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I remember the first time I had a, a denial of class certification... Um, in a race discrimination case, I c- like I just felt depressed for like a year, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I just felt so upset for the clients. I felt so bummed because the case was so good and I was mad at the judge. Um, and that's really not a recipe for longevity. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, I, I think I just tend to respond to, to both kind of levels um, a little less strongly and try to stay a little bit more centered. Mm-hmm. So if there's a victory, you know, um, like, yes, mm-hmm. like, whatever, high-five people. But if there's a loss, try to model for people around that it's going to be okay. Yeah, Like, we can bounce back from this. There's another day. You know, let's be strong for the clients and figure out if there's another move. In um, most part, there's just... Lots and lots of frustrating um, disappointments, and ultimately, you can prevail. But disappointments can, you know, really interfere with your sense of happiness. Yeah. eat
1: away at your self esteem. Yeah. yeah. Especially if associates maybe think that the partners are unhappy with them, that's going to give them um, a sense of being on edge, that they yeah. maybe couldn't perform properly. So, I, I will make the assumption, tell me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that. You're not coming down on your associates crazy hard if something goes wrong in court, right? Oh no, you're, you're there to lift them up, tell them that you've been there, tell them your story. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think uh, for the most part, it's figuring out like w- what role did I play in whatever went poorly. So, right
1: there, the, the, the responsibility you're taking for someone else's failure is amazing because yeah. managing partners, that you don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, that's just
2: yeah Great. no, I think well that's where the for, i mean everything the buck's can we me. clone you
0: <laughs> is what I'm asking yeah
2: well, I'm not perfect, you know, I have my days, no but, one's perfect, uh, but
0: can we clone you yeah
2: i mean <laughs> i i it's my if it's my case or, i mean I'm on the case, um I look at everything or you know I'm responsible for the strategy, so if the strategy was a bad strategy, how can you even start to blame someone else for that. Um, if the strategy was a good strategy that was executed poorly, how do you help a person next time do it better? Mm-hmm. Um, but also making sure you don't put people in situations that are too big for them. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: I try to give associates who haven't had a lot of experience on their feet in court um, like easy opportunities, opportunities that either, you know, it doesn't matter really. I mean, it's it, it would be great if we won, but if we lose, it won't. Blow so, everything up. Yeah, yeah. So it could, it could be a very challenging argument. Let them have it. But so what if they don't, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Like, and I tell them that it's okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, nothing bad's going to happen here. This is for you to figure out how it feels to do this. Um, and if they're successful, then it's great. They just gain a little bit more confidence. So I think the same is true of depositions or anything. Um, you want people to be able to swim on the deep end of the pool, but you don't want to like drown them yourself by yeah. <laughs> giving them things that are just massively too taxing and difficult. Um, so yeah, so that's the first thing. It's probably it's probably my fault in some respect. Whatever bad thing happens, or it's literally no one could possibly have done anything else, and the judge just Back wasn't off. with us.
0: Yeah, and that happens. And that happens. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I we we like to ask our our. Um, are people who come and talk to us what is your mantra something that you've held on to told yourself uh, in good times and, and challenging times um, is there is there something that you hang on to
2: I don't know that's a hard question I had uh, to think about that
0: yeah we we both have like songs that we yeah fa- what are your mantras <laughs> when I go into court I I'm usually playing um, Beyonce's girls in my head um, who runs the world? Girls. Um, she's got. She's got other things.
1: Um, I well, I Beyonce a lot is my mantra song. Uh, yeah. One of the mantras that Summer and I have come up with together uh, is: if we can't woo you, then screw you. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we try one. as hard as
1: we can, and if it doesn't work, then you have to let it go. Yeah. Um, and then one of the more positive ones for for me personally is just just keep going. You can do this. Just a very simple: put one foot in front of the other and face another day.
0: One that I also have is sink or swim. I mean, you're either, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. Either you're going to sink or you're going to swim. It's one or the other. So, go.
2: yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think I have. I mean, it's funny, like, it's more like a walk on song or whatever. Yeah. It, I'm sure that's changed over time. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Um, I, we should have we'll all have walk on songs be
0: great. Um I know. Wouldn't that be amazing? And I, I think always I played think, them in yeah. court. Here's the thing, yeah. I always when the when the judge comes out, usually the clerk comes out first and like the deputy and I always picture it's like a concert when like the drummer comes first and the bassist and then the and then the big like you know, the big the singer comes and that's the judge. So they should have a song. I yeah. really, really would like that. But they don't allow it. I saw one judge do it once and it didn't work out well. It was yeah. a pro tem. We had a um we had a summer
2: associate event that was right around the Margaret Brent luncheon, and I put a playlist together. And I th- think the first song I I had was, like, Panic at the Disco, Hey, Look, Mom, Ma, I, I Made It, or mm-hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah? Was like, yeah. Yeah, 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 Margaret Brent. Awesome. Um, yeah, but I don't have a walk-on song otherwise. Um, you got to get one.
1: i got to get gotta one, get yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The summer actually just put together a CWL um, Empa- it was, empowerment yeah. of women's empowerment playlist nice and yeah. Um, yeah. solicited songs from people on the board and I think other people yeah. put together this really wonderful playlist we're yeah. happy to share it if I would love interested. to see it yeah um, clearly yeah, and we would love to take some uh, yeah hey look mom I made it I don't think that's on uh, no, right. <laughs> no, no, no it's not on So a good there's, one. Some, there's some panic on the disco panic at the disco It's a lot of Beyonce there's a lot of Beyonce oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: there's Rihanna bitch better have my money it's on there <laughs> nice I mean, yeah <laughs> I'm just, yeah, throwing them out there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if we could, if you could speak directly to, you know, young attorneys or young women who are getting into the profession, is there any advice you would give them? Anything you would say that might help them on difficult days or, or even on good days?
2: Yeah, well, I was thinking about this about the mantra or whatever, you know, like it's, it's just one day. You know, mm-hmm. it's just one brief. It's just one, it's just one, and it may be huge, but in the in the course of your life, in the course of your career, in the course of your meaning on the planet, it's a drop. You know, so I think having that um, uh, relationship to uh, the, the bad things or the difficult things is is important. Um, In terms of, like, work organizations, I tell my associates all the time, you know, when you think about your life in the job, like at my law firm or in the cases, uh, everything changes every six months. Whatever's going on right now, it's creating a mood, an intensity, a crushing workload. It'll be different in six months. It always is. Mm -hmm. So if you can talk yourself through getting past whatever that, thing is, um, it'll be better. Or or it'll be different at least. Seasonal.
0: Seasonal. It's seasonal. Mm. That already makes me feel better. So thank (laughs) you. Um, Anything else from you, Ariel?
1: I just want to thank you so much for being here and telling you how impressed we both were with the speech at the Margaret Brent Award Uh, and again at CWL. Thank you. When when you spoke, we knew we had to have you on here the first time we heard you spoke at the Margaret Brent because it's uh, unbelievably incredible, especially looking at some of the case, the cases that you've taken against some of the large corporations and the positive impact you've had in the workers' lives is just admirable. Thank so you. Thank you so much for what you do for the profession. Thank
2: yeah. you. Uh, look how lucky I am to get to do this work. I mean, it's, I pinch myself. Like, it's incredible. Um, I, I think said, so
1: rarely does an attorney get to always be on the right side of things. Yeah. And it seems, at least for the cases that I've seen you work on, you are very often, if not always, on the (laughs) right side, on the side of justice. Yeah,
0: We actually
2: have sort of a social justice lens um, in the firm. So we have a management committee, I sit on it, where we look at every new case filing. And so whatever it is, whether it's a securities case or antitrust or what have you, we have to ask ourselves, what is the benefit to society? You know, is this a case that's just... um, not not just just that is a case that two powers um have a dispute and any person could win or lose and it wouldn't make a difference to the world but it makes a difference to them is that a case that our firm should be doing and just i think the overall answer is no um we want to do a case where there's been a fraud on society of you know violence to our due process or uh, rule of law um that there's been uh you know a uh, cementing of inequities that are historic um, that we want to undo so like that's the stuff that across the board gets the the firm really excited you know our antitrust group is doing a case involving price fixing of bail bonds oh and
1: yeah. if you ever
2: thought you weren't an antitrust lawyer that'll like, change your mind like yeah <laughs> like that <laughs> 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 yeah so um yeah i uh, it's a really really fun place to work
1: and it seems like your outcomes really do affect things. You talked about a case you had against Home Depot, and the woman that you were representing prevailed. And I think you, in fact, said that because of your case, the way that Home Depot handled their management ranks over the next four years drastically changed. Employment, yeah. even. And their employment, everything, the way that they were hiring, promoting, all of those things changed because of the case that you took. And that's, that's great. You're bringing accountability to power.
2: That's the idea. <laughs> you know, Not every case has a... Um, a picture-perfect outcome and the law is so imperfect for justice uh, and it's it's terrible for restoring dignity but you hope you strive very hard to create those places in law where you can really maximize justice and you can try to get some semblance of dignity back for your clients
1: well keep on doing what you're doing yeah That's wonderful thank, thank you so much you. for Please. being here yeah, thank,
0: you. thank you all right as always, I want to thank our wonderful guest, Kelly Dermody for being here with us. Thank you to my fabulous co-host, Ariel Brown-Ali and Gilbert for our as our sound engineer. Until next time.